Pastor Xavier Reese, reminding us of the constant battle within each one of us. We are sinners by nature. We have a propensity and a bent to sin. If, if we didn't have sin nature, the devil and the world couldn't bother us. It's my sin nature within me that makes the world and Satan such an attraction and such a difficult thing to resist. If I could remove sin nature, everything outside of me would have no effect upon me. It is within me. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. When kids act up, sometimes the best solution is just ignore them. But when it comes to God's children, well, Pastor Xavier says it's best to quickly remedy the situation. So let's join him as he takes us back to our study of the Old Testament book of Leviticus for today's important study. Leviticus chapter 4, I've entitled the message, God Does Not Ignore Sin. All of us as Christians, I'm sure, know that. At least we think we know it. But there is a daily practical application that we have to live it out in such a way that we view sin the way God views it. It's something destructive, something that God cannot tolerate. The Lord has spoken to Moses regarding the first three sacrifices, which are voluntary sacrifices. Those sacrifices were given in an ongoing fellowship with God. They were in right relationship. They spoke of the person of Christ and the burnt offering. We saw that it spoke of yielding one's life as dedication and consecration to God. In the meal or the grain offering, that individual was given his life as a service yielded to God. And in the peace offering, there is that ongoing fellowship just to eat and to be one with God. Every one of these three first offerings were called sweet aroma to the Lord. They pleased the Lord because the, the man came voluntary of his own will, desiring God to be with God and to be a worshiper of God. Nothing pleases God more than for you and I to come to Him of our own accord to worship Him. Nothing pleases a parent more than for his child to walk in and just say, Mom, I love you. It's something that comes of the heart, something that comes spontaneous, something that's not rehearsed, something that comes from deep within of that gratitude as one contemplates on all the things that have happened to one's life in relationship to that one person. And all you can do is pour your heart out in a gratitude and spontaneous. And that's what worship is all about. Not something mechanical that we do. It's very important. God takes note of that. But there is an enemy of worship that interrupts it as sure as water puts out fire. It is sin. Whenever sin enters the believer's walk, worship is not only denied, but access to God is obstructed. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. So I can be in worship, but when sin enters my life, then there's an impediment, there's an obstacle. It's like looking down a telescope and, and I see clearly, but then an object gets between the two lenses, then my vision is obstructed. I cannot see beyond that sin. 
Isaiah 59 says, God's hand is not short that he cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated between you and God. People in the world say, what is sin? But sometimes people in the Lord, they don't say it boldly like that, but they live a life as if sin really doesn't matter to God any longer. As if God tolerates it in their own life because they are the exception. I challenge you to find me one case, one exception from Genesis to Revelation where there was sin and God did not deal with it. Directly or indirectly. Not one. Remember, one of the key themes of Leviticus is holiness. They were to be a holy people, to know how to worship God and how to walk with God. And that's really very basic and that's very simple. And really, that's all that God wants us to learn in Jesus Christ. To worship Him. And as you worship Him, you'll walk with Him. And when you don't walk with Him, then you get right with Him and you're back in worship. You're back in walk. And there's that relationship that goes on from day to day, from moment to moment. Sin nature and its fruit are evident by various acts, deeds, thoughts, and attitudes contrary to God's will and revelation. And not one is the exception, as I have said. Every one of us as Christians, we would love to say we're perfect, but we're not. Now, sometimes people teach the perfection of the believer that we get to a place where we no longer sin. I have never met one, though I've heard of them. We are sinners by nature. We have a propensity and a bent to sin. If, if we didn't have sin nature, the devil in the world couldn't bother us. If I could remove sin nature, everything outside of me would have no effect upon me. You know when your sin nature will be dead? When I do your funeral. When you go to mine. And not before. Spurgeon put it this way. It would be an awful experiment to set a house on fire, intending to let it burn just so much and no more. Can you say to the fire, this far you shall come and no further? If you could say it to fire amongst standing corn blown by the wind, yet you would say it in vain to sin. Sin swiftly grows from a pygmy to a giant. And ever increasing in its awful power, it crushes down the man who is in its grip and holds him under its dreadful sway. And when you are given to sin, and when you are not making preparations to resist sin, it will take hold of you as fast and as powerful as the non-believer. You are no different, nor am I. Now, God, knowing the bent of man towards sin, provided a mandatory offering. Remember, the first three were voluntary. These last two are mandatory. For the forgiveness of sin, to restore fellowship, to come back in oneness and in harmony with Him. And they speak of the work of Christ, both the sin offering and the trespass offering. Before our study this morning, we want to look at chapter 4 at the sin offering, which speaks of expiation of sin for restored fellowship. The word expiation simply means forgiveness, removal. A propitiation, a word that we hear and we read through the New Testament. 
Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the whole world. He appeased God's wrath, if you will. He satisfied it. He was the very sacrifice. The wrath of God fell upon him. Now, the chapter is lengthy. It's 35 verses. And um, for the sake of this morning, we want to concentrate on chapter 4 only because there's some important things there. And I'm not going to read it all because it will take long. We'll take a section and we're going to make some observations. But I want you to mark the things that we're going to look at because they are very important regarding sin in your life and sin as God views it. The first thing we want to look at is the particulars of the sin offering. Then we want to look at the people identified with the sin offering. And then we want to finish by looking at the prophetic announcement in the sin offering. Let's look at the particulars of the sin offering first. First of all, the sin offering is the longest of the five offerings. The burnt offering had 17 verses. The grain offering, 16 verses. The peace offering, 17 verses. And you'll find them corresponding chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. The trespass offering, 13 verses. You find that from chapter 5, verse 14, to chapter 6, verse 7. But the sin offering has 48 verses. Chapter 4, verse 1, down to chapter 5, verse 13. Notice also the sin offering reveals and affirms man's fallen sin nature. Very simply by this. First, the provision is for a person who sins unintentionally through ignorance, weakness, or inadvertently. It is found there in verse 2 of chapter 4. It is sin that is brought about because he's a sinner. Inadvertently. Not purposely, because remember, sin... With a high hand, there was no forgiveness for that. You find in the book of Numbers. One who blatantly, rebelliously, cantankerously, proudfully rebelled against God. No forgiveness in the Old Testament. It would be stoned to death. And so it means the missing of a mark. That's what sin means. You miss a mark, you go target shooting. You miss the mark because you're a bad shot, not because you like to miss. That's the picture of the Christian if he's turned on to the Lord, if he's committed. We miss the mark because of our weakness, because of our sinful nature, not because we practice sin any longer. Paul the Apostle says in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Perish the thought. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so what used to be a practice in my life is not a practice anymore. It's an exception because of weakness and failure. And sin overcomes me. But it is no longer a practice. The missing of the mark, though it's through error, it doesn't nullify or ignore personal guilt. Verse 3 of chapter 4, you find the word brings guilt on the people, meaning the priests. In verse 13, you find it at the end, are guilty. Verse 22, and is guilty at the end. Verse 27, is guilty at the end of the verse. Regardless of your infirmity or weakness, you are still guilty when sin comes in. I am guilty. Some people sin and they figure, well, you know, God understands. No, no, you're guilty. When we get to the place where we feel and we sense that sin has no effect on us, we are in trouble. We have just deceived ourselves and sin has just deceived us and Satan has just deceived us. 
Whenever sin enters a believer's life, there must be a conviction. There must be a, a, a sense of, of response to that because God cannot tolerate it. Notice also the person comes to God not as a worshiper, as in the first three offerings, called a sweet aroma to the Lord. But he comes as a sinner in need of forgiveness to restore his walk in worship. Verse 20 of chapter 4, at the end he says, and it shall be forgiven them. Verse 26, at the end, shall be forgiven him. Verse 31, at the end, and it shall be forgiven him. There has to be a sense that I need to be forgiven. Not just going through the ritual of some mechanical motion, but that I sense the weight of my sin, and I sense that sin is against God and against Him. David in Psalm 51.4 says, Against you and only you have I sinned. That's after he committed his sin with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. You see, sin primarily is against God, secondly against man. And you and I have to see sin as that. If not, then we will always look at sin less than God sees it. I like what David says in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There was a constant awareness in David that he was a sinner. He had need of expiation, of cleansing. There was sin residing in him as nature. And he did not want to go on in any way, shape, or form, even in secret sin, which he was ignorant of. Because you and I don't know everything. We don't know everything we do. And sometimes when we do something, we're unaware of. And we have sinned, but we don't know it. And so search me, Lord, know if there is any wicked way within me. Cleanse me from secret fault, the psalmist prays. Show me my ways, Lord. Paul the Apostle says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't even judge my own judgment upon myself because I don't know everything, but God will reveal those things in the day of judgment. And so we need to open our hearts to God because we need forgiveness. Notice also the sin offering was new. Unlike the first three that existed way before Moses, you never read of the sin offering prior to Moses, do you? It is new. Now, though the idea of expiation and forgiveness and substitution for sin were evident from the garden and in all the sacrifices, you never read of it before this time in an organized and prescriptive form. You have it here for the first time. Does that mean that sin never existed before Moses? No. You want to know the reason why? Turn your Bible to Romans chapter 5. This is very important. In Romans chapter 5, verse 13, as you know, Paul here in Romans is very systematically showing that all are guilty before God, Jew and Gentile. And he's showing that man is saved by the grace of God, not by any works. When he comes to chapter 5, he has told us now that we are justified in the work of Christ. When he comes down to verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, For until the law... Sin was in the world. It began in the garden. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. 
Now the law has been given at Sinai. Now the sin offering can be given and instituted. Why not before? There was no law. Well, wait a minute. Didn't God give law to Noah in Genesis 9? Governmental law, yes. But not law as we have it here for worship and for walking in the extension that he has it. And so now he puts it down as part of those offerings. In Romans 3.20, there's a corollary to that. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Why was the law given? To tell and to show man that he is a sinner. The law is a constant reminder that I fall short, I am not perfect. You know why there's traffic laws? Because you and I are lawbreakers. No policeman ever pulls you over and gives you a ticket of congratulations for going 55. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how mad we get when that policeman pulls us over and he writes us a ticket for speeding? As if we have never broken it or deserved it. We have broken that law at least once a day. But when we get busted, we act as if, how dare he? We break it every day. We have to be careful we don't act like that with God. And so you have here the particulars of the sin offering. Very important to mark that in this chapter. Notice next the people identified with the sin offering. The very first one is the anointed priest in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything that ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish, as a sin offering. The priest is the first one to be dealt with. I love God's justice. I love the way God does things. Do you recall, do you remember being in the garden? Eve blew it. Adam followed. How did God deal with the consequences? He always deals with consequences with the level of privilege, the amount of light you possess, and to the one that possesses the greater light has the greatest privilege, therefore has the greatest responsibility, and has the most definite greatest consequence. Who did God go first to? Serpent. Then Eve. Then Adam. You see, you go through the priorities. We should deal with those issues like that all the time. Always in terms of responsibility. Who holds the greatest light? Who holds the greatest responsibility? Here is a perfect example once again. He comes to the high priest first. He was the one who had the greatest privilege of all of them. He was a mediator. He was the intercessor. He was the go-between. And when he sinned, fellowship was gone between God and the people. It was cut off. He brought a breach between God and the people because of that office of being a mediator. Exodus 29, 43-46 says, I will meet you there and speak with you. In the tabernacle. He brought guilt on the people as their representative. Verse 3 tells us the first portion. You see, it was his sin, but he was a representative. 
How awful that some of us are in a place of great privilege, of great responsibility. And as we are, then our sin will affect others. As a husband, I have an awesome responsibility for my wife and my children. What I do will affect them one way or another. As a pastor, I have an awesome responsibility because I affect every one of you and the work of God here. Now, you are no exception. You are responsible and you will affect others at various degrees. He had the greatest responsibility based on the greatest privilege. As a type of Christ, therefore, the greater judgment came upon him. Remember Eli the priest in 1 Samuel 3.13? God told Samuel, you tell Eli, I'm going to wipe his house out. You know why? Because he had not restrained his profane children from sinning. They were laying with the women in the temple. They were ripping off the offering. And they were causing people to abhor the sacrifice of God. And his father did not restrain them. And therefore God held him responsible. And God wiped out his whole house. How are you doing with your children, parents? Now be flexible. Grow with them. They're not you. But are you setting the boundaries and are you bringing forth the consequences? If you do not restrain your children, God will hold you responsible for them. If you do not set the boundaries and bring the consequences, God will hold you responsible. Notice he offered the most expensive offering required, a bull, in verses 3 and 4. Symbolic of repentance, he would lay his hand again, transfer the sins, and the bull would be the substitute for him. Repentance is behind this. Completely, it's understood. Notice he offered the blood by taking and making atonement in three places. That is given to us from verse 5 on down. The first place in verses 5 and 6 would be the veil between the holy place and the most holy. It would be sprinkled seven times on there. Reconciling access to God as mediator. The mediation had been broken. He had to reconcile that. Get right. It was before the veil. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says that veil that was rent was the flesh of Jesus Christ. His blood. His sacrifice. The second one is the horns of the altar of incense. The golden altar in the first place, the first room, the holy place, which stood before the veil. It was gold. Take note of that. Here, reconciling worship and prayer to God. Verse 7, the first two portions there. And so the book of Revelation tells us, chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, that the sweet-smelling incense is the sweet prayers of the saints unto the Lord. And so here, reconciliation was made for prayer and worship. First, mediation, then prayer and worship. But the third area was the brass altar, Outside the court, you find this in the latter portion of verse 7. Reconciling the individual to God because the individual sinned as the, as the priest sinned. You say, that's not fair. It may not be fair to you, but that's the way God has it. And he's absolutely just. A husband becomes unfaithful, the wife is destroyed. You say, that's not fair. That's right, but we're living in a sinful world. There are a lot of things that are not fair in this world. Are you looking for fairness? You better not look for it here. Are you looking for justice? You better think twice. You want justice in your life? Or you want mercy and grace? 
If you want justice in other people's life, then you have to live by that standard. None of us could stand it. None of us could pass the test. And so the reconciliation, the atoning, those three areas are so important because he's the mediator. He's the priest between God and the people. Pastor Xavier Reese with a gentle reminder of God's incredible compassion and forgiveness. Now you can request a copy of today's challenging study called God Does Not Ignore Sin. As always, it's available on CD for just $4. And make sure you pass along this important message to your friends and loved ones. The title to ask for once again is God Does Not Ignore Sin. Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's important that you include the call letters of this station when you contact us. Now, what's the danger of harboring unrepentant sin? Join Pastor Xavier Reese on the next edition of Simple Truths as he reminds us of the consequences that accompany disobedience. Hope to see you then. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com